Our focus this morning is on a fairly lengthy section in chapter 7, verses 8 through 16. I'm going to read those verses from the New American Standard, and then I've asked David Farmer if he would pray for the ministry of the Word. Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. Ephraim has become a cake not turned. Strangers devour his strength, yet he does not know it. Gray hairs also are sprinkled on him, yet he does not know it. Though the pride of Israel testifies against him, yet they have neither returned to the Lord their God, nor have they sought him for all this. So Ephraim has become like a silly dove, without heart. They call to Egypt, they go to Assyria. When they go, I will spread my net over them. I will bring them down like the birds of the sky. I will chastise them in accordance with the proclamation to their assembly. Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction is theirs, for they have rebelled against me. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. And they do not cry to me from their heart when they wail on their beds. For the sake of grain and new wine they assemble themselves. They turn away from me. Although I trained and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They turn, but not upward. They are like a deceitful bow. Their princes will fall by the sword because of the insolence of their tongue. This will be their derision in the land of Egypt. Let us pray. Last week, we looked at the city of Samaria in the area of Ephraim, as Hosea presents it in the first part of chapter 7, the iniquity of Ephraim being uncovered, as it were, the evil deeds of Samaria, the corruption of the king, of the princes, of perhaps the priests egging them on and being part of that corruption. And now we come in verse 8 where he says Ephraim again, perhaps expanding now to the populace, to the, to the citizens, the people of the nation, the, the people who were remaining in the land of Israel at the time. And it, is it any wonder if there's corruption in the court that there will also be corruption in the populace? 
But sometimes when we come to a book like Hosea, we come expecting to, to, to be refreshed, to get a drink, a cup of cold water, and yet with Hosea, it's, it's like we're staring into a fire hose that he, he got his first image out, the, the image hot like an oven. And, and so his first simile uh, coming out and the corruption and the, the heating up of the fire and the things that resulted, the bursting into the flame of their sin. And, and then we go on to the next and it's, it's as if he hits us with this torrent of images and figures and similes and metaphors beating us over the head, uh, pushing us down making us feel so small. And there are times when I read or even preach from Hosea, and I, I, I think we, so much of it is, is a mirror of our own sin, and I'm getting tired of standing in front of the mirror. I'm getting tired at looking at what I'm like, my sin and, and my unrighteousness, my ungodliness. And sometimes you probably go home feeling, you know, Mark, you've got us in the muck and the mire, but where's the hope? Where is the grace and where is the mercy? There are Christians who say, well, we don't read the Old Testament anymore because we have mercy and grace in Christ, and we say we don't need the Old Testament. But I want to announce to you today that even in this passage where it feels like we're getting beat up on every side, that God is pointing out every sin imaginable, every attitude and thought and intention of our heart, that there is hope. There is grace. There is mercy. The heart of God is here. Remember how Hosea begins his book. He tells us about his marriage. Hosea has been through what God is going through with his people. His wife was adulterous. His, his wife left him for other lovers. Even when she rejoiced in what she had, she forgot that Hosea was the one providing and here we see Israel as exemplified by Ephraim doing the same thing. And yet, for, for those of us here, if you are in Christ, if you know Christ, there is hope. There, and there is reminders of the fact that we are, we are not to be like this. It, it says Ephraim has become a cake not turned. These are things that he was set apart to, to, to be God's man, to be the nation that would, would glorify him. And he's become these things. He's moved to these things. And yet there is hope. There is repentance. There is returning. And I hope, I pray, that in explaining these things and looking at these things, that that hope and that anchor of the soul that we have, I, as, during Sunday school, as, as Tim was teaching us, and we, we learned, and I hadn't really heard that phrase, that sometimes in some religions called Christians, they can pull the veil back closed so that the veil that Christ opened to see God, to enter in boldly, they close it, and they want to be the one that's kind of the veil keeper, and I don't want to be the one who closes the veil and says, well, this is all you can see. I want to be the one who, who says, Christ has opened the veil. And as we, as we just sang, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. 
And even though Jesus is not named here, Jesus is, comes through here because he is the opposite of these things. He, he is the one who did not sin, and yet, tempted in every way as we are, did not fall into these sins. So as we see these sins and recognize these sins in ourselves, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. And so as we look at these metaphors, and again, they spill out, it's, it's this torrent is all I can say, it, it it's comes spilling out of the pen of Hosea. What are the people like? What are we like? We, we do have to look in the mirror, but we see these things that help us understand. And some of these metaphors are pretty easy to see because he explains it first and then tells you what the metaphor is. So you kind of get a, a preview of coming attractions. But then there are others, he gives you the metaphor, the simile, and then he explains it. And other times it's pretty obscure. And the Hebrew in here, and there are places where I can tell you honestly, I don't know exactly what it means. But I think the spirit and the heart comes through from Hosea. I think he, he, he hits us in a way that, that we cannot but help see, at, at least in parts of, of these things, our own sin, our, our own carelessness, our own thoughtlessness, our own ignorance of walking with God. So as we begin, we look at verse 8, and he, he says, Ephraim mixes himself with the nations. Ephraim has become a cake not turned. See, there is the metaphor. He has become like a cake not turned, but he explains it to us beforehand. He mixes himself with the nations. Some people say he's the, he's the oil mixed with the flour, but I think in the context here, he, he's ruined bread that is not fit to eat. The idea of, of, of the ancients and the oven was more like a griddle where they would prepare the dough and, and then they would have the, the coil, coals burning down and then they would sweep a place where they could set the, the bread down flat on the oven. But they had to turn it because what do you get? You get on one side it's scorched and on the other side it's doughy and it's gooey. Several of the commentators quote George Adam Smith he says, how better to describe a half-fed people, a half-cultured society, a half-lived religion, a half-hearted policy than by a half-baked scone. Ephraim is a cake not turned. He's half-baked. He, he's turned side down, perhaps toward the nations. And what has happened? Well, we're going to find out in verse 9. They are scorched. They, they burnt him. And, the, and perhaps the side up is the doughy side. Toward God, he's doughy. Toward God, he's kind of squishy. And he's not fit to eat. He doesn't taste good. God said when he set apart his people, you will be a peculiar people. And he didn't mean weird. He, and weird to society, perhaps. But he meant you will be my special people. And there's no peculiarity about Ephraim. He's a cake not turn. He ain't good for, sorry, he's not good for anything. He's confounded himself with these inner contradictions. He has no real conviction. He, 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 he mixes with the nations, the, the pagans, those who don't know God and have covenant with him. But then, you know, on the other side, well, you know, I, I love God. I, I worship. I go to the temple. And he's a constant self-contradiction. 
He's neither light nor salt, but on the other hand, he's not wholly pagan either. But God says of people like this in Psalm 72, you, you love evil more than good. You, you don't love me more than you love your sin. And that side toward the nations, that side that got scorched, we know from the history, their marriage and society, they intermarried, they married people that did not know their covenant God. And to me, there, there is a warning, as Paul tells us later in the New Testament, do not be unequally yoked. There, there is that warning, because you make... You, you make a division. A house divided itself, against itself cannot stand. And in the popular media, we, we, all these celebrities where, you know, Jew marries Christian, and we'll, we just have a blending of the cultures and religion. You can't. A house divided against itself will not stand. It, it's either scorched or it's doughy <laughs> on one side and doughy on the other, but it's not holy toward anything. And God warns them against making covenants with the pagan nations. He says, lest it be a snare to you. And when we are unequally yoked, when we are in a business relationship with someone who doesn't have our values, or when we're in that society, and we imbibe their principles, it will be a snare. You will be called upon to compromise. There can be no other, and you will be either scorched or you'll be doughy. And in their worship, of course, their superstition and idolatry. And it, and it says, and I couldn't find the verse again, but there is there's one verse that says, in, I think it's in 2 Kings, they feared the Lord and served their gods, little g. Whew, that's a cake not turned. They say, I fear the Lord, but at the same time, they serve gods that were no gods at all. And now we see why in 7D, the, verse 7, the last part, none of them calls on me. None of them turns. They're, they're very indifferent toward the call of God. They're, there's these two extremes, the very hot and the very cold, and they're mixed in one. And I looked at 1 Kings 18, and you know the story about Elijah where, where he was challenged to, to, to make the altar and call down the fire of God. But before that, there, there's this very strange thing which I think depicts these people. He, he says to them, if the Lord, Jehovah, is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. In other words, choose this day whom you will serve. God, Jehovah, or Baal. And what did the scriptures say about the people? But the people did not answer him a word. That's a cake not turned. God says to us, choose you this day whom you will serve. Do not be that cake not turned. That does not please the Lord. If Jehovah is God, serve him. If Baal is Lord, then serve him. And we can either be a cake not turned, or we can be those who take to heart what Jesus said was the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with what? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And we can be those people among the nations as Jesus and the gospel show us in the world but not of the world. 
Jesus prays for us in his high priestly prayer that we would be those kinds of people. We would, again, look to Jesus. Jesus was friend of sinners, tax collectors, right? And yet he was not mixed with them. He was above them. And yet he, had, he could look at the fields, he could look at the people as he describes it as like a field white for harvest and have compassion in his heart for them. That's the kind of people. We would love God with all our heart and yet we would not mix with the nations but we would be a light and salt to them. And what happens when you mix with the nations, verse 9, strangers devour his strength, yet he does not know it. Gray hairs are sprinkled on him, yet he does not know it. Though the pride of Israel testifies against him, <laughs> he doesn't know it. See, there, there's this intense pride that they had that we can have even in our sin. Strangers devour his strength. And that's what I was speaking. When you're unequally yoked, or, or it, it doesn't matter in any sin, when you mix yourself with, with sin or any addiction, whether it be addiction to pornography or alcohol or drugs or even to football, there's something that takes your heart wholly away and, and you don't recognize it. You, we become ignorant. Our strength is being sapped by our sin. As Derek Kidner said, a sinner is a prisoner to his sins. And they didn't know it. They didn't recognize it. They didn't know, for example, in Israel, that what was happening as they were making these political alliances with Egypt and Assyria particularly, the king was going periodically down to Assyria with bucket loads of gold from the treasury. And he was literally, his strength, his economic strength was being eaten away, devoured. The agricultural land was being taken over. He was being devoured and eaten. My first boss in engineering had a sign above his desk that when you went in for your annual performance review, it was right over his left shoulder. <laughs> and it said, ignorance can be fixed, but stupidity is forever. There is the stupidity of the people here. Their, being, their strength is being devoured, but they do not know it. They have gray hairs sprinkled on them, but they do not know it. The intensity of their pride testifies against him. Those worry lines, the wrinkles of old age are showing, but he doesn't recognize it. And when he looks in the mirror, and perhaps this is what it means, the gray hairs, they're starting, though, the salt and pepper in the, around the temples and in the beard, but he doesn't recognize that he's getting old. And there is one of the commentators who said, well, you know, we're in the kitchen, right? We've had the oven, we've had the cake not turn, and now we have the gray hairs. And I thought, well, maybe that's not right for the Hebrew, but it does communicate, You've all done this, haven't you? You've had leftovers, and you've put them in the fridge, and somehow they get back to the deepest, darkest corners and recesses of the refrigerator, and then a week, two weeks, two months later, you find them, and you open them only to discover that you have been incubating... <laughs> 
this monster in your Tupperware. And you open it up and it has hair and it has goo and it has this pus on it. And the idea of the Hebrew is that all of these things, the stranger taking him, the gray hair coming upon him, the, the, the pride that is intensifying in him, he does not know it, but it's been growing. It's been literally it's stealing in on him over time. But he didn't know it. He didn't recognize it. And sadly, Hosea says, they didn't care. They were not interested. Verse 10, yet they have neither returned to the Lord their God, nor have they sought him for all this. His strength, his vigor, his energy has been sapped by his sin, but he doesn't recognize it, and he's not interested in dealing with it. But God expects his people to react to their afflictions, does he not? God expects that when he disciplines us, what does he say? For our good and for his glory. And there is hope. There is a way. Sin does zap us of our strength. It, it does take our comfort and our support away from us. And it can steal in, as he said in chapter 5, I'll be to, to them like a moth and like rottenness. And sin can cause that gradually, over time, we don't even recognize that sin ruining us from the inside out. But there is a strength to be had, is there not? Through Isaiah in chapter 40, he says, those who wait on the Lord shall what? Renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. There is hope in Christ. There is hope in God. And in the New Testament, I'm thinking about Christ. What is Ephesians 5? Paul calls him, he is our husband. He is making his bride ready. And this is, man, you know, for an older guy like me, you know, I hate looking in the mirror. I see the gray hair. I see the wrinkles. And I do see the pride. And I get tired of looking at it. But what does he say? That, that God is, is bringing us through the washing of the word. And what does he say about us when he presents his bride to himself, what will be gone? What will be absent from this picture in the mirror? Spots or wrinkles or any such thing. He will make us presentable to him. And we will be a glory to him. And we will not be stupid. Our ignorance will be fixed. And we will glorify him. Hosea goes on, verse 11, So Ephraim has become a silly dove without sense, or in some versions, with, literally, without heart. He's, I've learned a lot about doves. I don't know much about birds. And, and we know the verse that says, you know, uh, be, um, yeah, what does it say? Innocent as doves. What's the first part? Um, yeah, wise as servants, innocent as doves. There is an innocency to doves, and there is a chastity in doves. 
But there is in doves also a silliness. And one of the things that they do is they do not recognize what's happened, especially if they're young or attacked, or they're young or attacked and eaten in the nest. They just rebuild the nest in the same place. They don't move away. And, and there, there is some sense where they, they don't care about their young. They don't have that mothering sense to their young. And when they're threatened, they don't go into the shelter. They flit around. They go to this place and that place and woo, flit around. And, and you, you talk about bird-brained. You, 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 you talk about flighty. Those are doves. And in the passage we see, so Ephraim has become like a silly dove without heart. They call to Egypt. They go to Assyria. There's the flightiness. They, they call to Egypt. Well, that echoes verse 7, uh, D. None of them calls on me, but they do call on Egypt. And it says they, don't, they, they go to Assyria, verse 11, but look back at verse 10, 10. None of them return to me, says God. There's the flightiness. There's Ephraim like a dove. Not going to the place where they can be secure, that strong tower that is the Lord our God. They, they go to the nations. They, they call to Egypt. They fly to Assyria. And they think that their help is in man. And most birds can see a net and go, that's danger, but not a dove. Apparently, it's pretty easy to put a little bait in the net and the dove will not even see the net and go right for the bait and be captured. And what does Jehovah say, verse 12? When they go, when they flit and they fly from me, I will spread my net over them. If they're going to play the dove, I'm going to play the hunter. I will bring them down like birds of the sky. I will chastise them according to the proclamation of their assembly. I will capture them. I will tie them up. And I will succeed. I will pursue them. Matthew Henry says, Those that will not abide by the mercy of God must expect to be pursued by the justice of God. And God in his justice pursues them with the net. He snatches them out of the sky. And he says, if they go and they make a covenant with the assembly or, or with Assyria, then I'll make that report in the assembly. It's as if the sin that is going to bind you, I will make sure that it binds you. I will bind you in your own sin. I will chastise you means I will bind, but it also means that he will instruct. And yet they're not getting it. They're not turning to him. And yet, again, there's hope here. When I read Zechariah chapter 1, Zechariah is after the exile. It's after the returning. And he's upset with them already. He's at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah when they're coming back. And, and he's saying, look, you know, finally, finally, God, you know, God said, return to me. And he said, you know, didn't all of the commandments and the word that I gave through the servants, my prophets, to your fathers finally overtake them? The word overtook them. And Zechariah is saying, I have my doubts about you. 
It overtook them. God had to snatch them in the net and bind them in their own sin so they would see. I don't know where I heard this. I wish I knew who said it. But someone has said, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. Most men are like silly doves. They, they don't know how to be bold. They, they don't know how to assert themselves. They don't know, well, should I switch jobs or not switch jobs? They're, they're afraid that people will make fun of them if they are too you know, outgoing or too outspoken. They're, they're afraid of messing up. They're afraid of taking their rightful position as leader, as husband in the home, and they abdicate that position to their wives and sadly sometimes to their children. They lead lives of quiet, senseless desperation. And some men are prisoners, as Kidner said, to their sins, and even though they know the, the hymn that we sing, that Christ has been that one who has broken the power of canceled sin, men will go back and they'll pick up the chains of their sin and bind themselves again with it. But it must and should not be so with us. Because we know the sin is canceled and we know we look to Jesus because he has the power to keep that sin from rebinding us. He has the power over sin. And how often, how often in our prayers do we move from the God bless to the be with beyond to where we beg God on our knees for the power to overcome sin. The writer to the Hebrews, does he not say, we have a great cloud of witnesses who've gone before us. Therefore, lay aside every weight and encumbrance that clings so closely and look to Jesus. Look to him, the author and finisher of our faith. And look at what happens to those who did not. Verse 13, Woe to them, for they have strayed from me. Destruction is theirs, for they have rebelled against me. There are those who say, you know, you, you Christians, you know, you talk about the wrath of God. It's so archaic. It, it's so prehistoric. Go to love. Go to grace. But what does Paul say in Romans when he begins his outline of the doctrine of the Christian faith, chapter 1? The wrath of God was revealed from heaven because of the wickedness and unrighteousness of men. In his justice, he had to reveal that because men didn't get it. They strayed. And what we see here in, in, in these verses 13, there are three things they did, and just briefly, they strayed, they rebelled, and they spoke lies. And some of your versions, you know, it, it, says, it does say strayed. Literally, the word is fled. They didn't just stray. They didn't just have indifference. They fled from God. 
And they didn't just say, well, you know, whatever floats your boat. They rebelled against God. And, and they didn't just say, well, you know, you can take God or leave him. They spoke lies against God. And we learn from reading Amos that lying against God, saying falsehoods about God, is idolatry. Tozer says idolatry is thinking thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. And, and there are those who say this is perhaps the worst lie that you can say, is teaching, espousing, believing false thoughts of God. So these aren't people who are just turning away. These are people who are in revolt and rebellion, and they're lying against God. And they've gotten upset with God. They're wailing. He says, they do not cry to me from their heart when they wail on their beds. And, and when they seek the, the grain and the new wine, what's happening is they're, they're not sorry for their sin. They're sorry for the pleasure that their sin gave them that God no longer allows them to have. See, at this time, the, the, again, strangers are devouring the land. There's a famine, at least now, are coming. There is a time when, when there's no food and, and there's no produce. And they're going to their beds where they had their festive orgies and their fertility rites under every green tree. And they're going, we used to enjoy this. And, and the bales would bring us our food and our wine. And we don't have it anymore. And, and they're not sorry for sin. They're sorry that they've lost their pleasure. And they cry against God. They're, they turn insolent. They, they, they start belittling God. They start cursing and, and spouting vulgarities at him. Literally belittling God. Betraying him with their tongue. And finally, they gash themselves. The scripture seems to indicate. They self-lacerate. They're cutters because they think that their gods will be more pleased with their sacrifices and wailing and crying if they cut themselves and bleed as a reinforcement. <laughs> and, and God is saying, I didn't teach you any of this. Because there's a great contrast here. And again, here's the hope and here's, here's God coming through. Verse 13, I would redeem them. Literally, I would pay the price for them. But they rebelled against me. Verse 15, although I trained them and strengthened their arms. And there are those who say that there's God as physician and surgeon, that the Strengthening their arms, they're, they're binding their broken bones. And then that is possible, or it is possible that what we see here is the loving father training his children, disciplining his children, strengthening them that they might live as men, godly men before him. Verse 13 literally would read, I for my part would redeem them, but they for their part speak lies against me. They would not have it. They throw off his training. They throw off his, his care. And they devise evil against him. It's not just that they think evil thoughts. They devise it. They think about it. They, they plan it and they carry it out. And they hurt the only one who most cares about them. 
They bring shame and dishonor to the God who is their trainer, who is their redeemer. And it says, sadly, verse 16, they turn but not upwards. Or some versions, they turn but not to the Most High. But again, I think in the Hebrew, the, it's, it, it, the not and, and the but is kind of out of order there. They turn, but to the bales. They turn, and literally, to no God, to nothing. They have allegiance to no one. They are like a deceitful bow, he says. They can't be trusted. They don't shoot straight. It's like a bow that when you draw it back, the string suddenly becomes slack and the arrow hits the ground. Or perhaps like a bow that when it lets go, it twists. And so that arrow that you aim toward the target actually hits a man. And they think that they're hurting God. They think that they are getting back at God for the, by doing these things, by keeping faith with no God. And Hosea, perhaps it was very, very difficult and very hard for him to write the last line in verse 16. This will be their derision in the land of Egypt. As we read on in Hosea, we know that he, is, he looks at the exile and longs for a new exile. He, he looks at the exile out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery and bondage where they had to make bricks without having any clay and all the things that happened, and how God freed them to the promised land, marching them out. And he longs for that again, that they would be free. And I cannot help but think that when we read in Matthew chapter 2, where Matthew picks up the verse that Hosea is going to pen in chapter 11, out of Egypt have I called my son. There's the hope. Matthew says it of Christ, that his parents took him to Egypt to escape Herod, and then out of Egypt, when Herod was dead, he called his son. But, but don't you see the hope? Out of Egypt, that land of bondage and chaining to sin, he called his people through his son. He came out and he calls us out with him. But here, here is the derision. To be derisive is to literally to laugh at, to make fun of. And can you not hear the people of Egypt? Last time you left Egypt in the exile, you were singing and dancing, were you not? He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider has fell into the sea. Our Lord, our God, is highly exalted, Moses and Miriam sang. God is mighty. He can do all things. He is great and powerful, they sang. And here we see they're calling to Egypt. They're asking, can we come back? And the people of Egypt are saying, ha, huh, what happened to your God? What happened? You said he was so mighty that he would bring you to a land of, of milk and honey and prosperous living, that he would set you apart and separate you as a people unto himself, and you want to come back. 
You want to come back to slavery. You want to come back to bondage. And many Christians, do we not? We act like that. We act like God has not freed us from bondage. Like we're still in our sins. That we are still under the power of that sin. And yes, some of us live with because our neighbors and our friends go, that crutch Christianity? You believe that stuff? You, you're so wimpy that you have to have that? And you cannot open any commentary at the bottom of, of anything on the internet, whether it be discussion on abortion or evolution or football, who's going to win the Super Bowl, at some point in there, people turn on Christians. Oh, you just say that because you believe that Christianity mess, and you, you know, you've got this airy-fairy, flighty, and Christians are held in derisions. We're being laughed at. But remember, out of Egypt he has called his son. Not only out of the bondage and slavery to sin, but out of being, having to listen to that derision and that laughter. If the church would live as the church. If the church was salt and light, he wouldn't be a cake not turned. Good to nobody. He would be salt. He would be one who has chosen God, Jehovah, as his God. But when we wail for men's help, and we are flighty, and we run to help which is no God, we do lead those senseless lives of quiet desperation. But I think Hosea says to us, Christian Believer in Jehovah God Almighty, put your repentance to this test. If God is God, worship him. If Baal is Baal, worship him. Do not be a cake unturned. Know who you believe. Worship him only. Give yourself to him. And then we will people who love God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, with all our strength. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would work your work in us. You are the teacher. Teach us. You are the great physician. Heal us. You are the redeemer. May the redeemed of the Lord say so whom you redeemed from the pit. Father, may we live as saints and not as unturned cakes. May we live for your glory and not those who rebel. May we flee to you and not away. God, that you would strengthen us, that we may be a people set apart for your honor, for your glory. And we ask that you would do this. Do this, Father. Do this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you please rise for the benediction from the book of Jude at verse 20. He writes, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
to eternal life. Amen.